This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States through the Scopes Monkey Trial. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 5. In the spring of this year, I gathered together some friends from my small group to talk about notes. Specifically, those little notes that are next to the scriptures in some Bibles. Okay, so I've got collected here 16 study Bibles that a bunch of people have given me on loan. And so I was thinking tonight, here in this small group, we could just flip through some of these, see what we think about them. I've got some specific I, uh, things I want to look at. It turns out there are all kinds of Bibles out there. Are, are there some that are aimed uh, maybe towards one gender or another? And what's the difference? How, how, how might they be marketed differently? I was gifted a teen girl's study Bible that was like pink and had flowers on it. Um, oh, this one says every man's Bible. Yeah. It looks Leather very cover. understated, you know, you could just carry this around and it's like kind of manly because it's leather bound. <laughs> it's like See, a flight jacket from the Fonz or yes. something. Yeah. <laughs> 16 Bibles of all different sizes, colors, fonts, and translations. The Founder's Bible that tries to build the case that the United States is a Christian country. The New Adventure Bible, which is marketed to kids and the Battlefield of the Mind Bible from Joyce Meyer. Can you flip to Revelation in that one? Pick a a note at random and just kind of read one for me. A prayer to renew your mind. Thank you, Jesus, for always loving me and for freeing me from my sins by your own blood. Adapted by Revelations 1.5. Can we just uh, find another Bible and flip to the book of Revelation, maybe the MacArthur Study Bible? Don't have to say the 66 books to find Revelation. (laughs) I picked an easy one. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Can you say the 66 books? Do you know them all? Oh, gosh. Genesis, Exodus. All these Bibles contain the same books that Hannah is currently singing about. But the notes next to the text were often very different. I forgot. I can do a lot of them. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. It helps when you have a song. So we just read through the Joyce Myers Bible. We just looked in the book of Revelation. Maybe just pick a random note, if there's maybe a, a standout note in Revelation. Okay. His fatal wound was healed. That's Revelation 13.3. This statement could refer to one of the kingdoms that was destroyed and revived, such as the Roman Empire but more likely it refers to a fake death and resurrection enacted by the Antichrist as part of his lying deception. Yeah, so how do you contrast that um, Joyce Meyer Bible versus the MacArthur Study Bible you just picked up? 
So the MacArthur Study Bible definitely has more notes, whereas the Joyce Meyer uh, just kind of like has little. Uh, kind of like breakout statements yeah. almost, yeah. Yeah, just like talking about the book in general, whereas like the study Bible, you can pick a verse and find the note that goes with that, that corresponds with that verse, and I'm not seeing that here in Joyce Meyer. Inspirational, yeah. almost, yeah. 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 I'd say there's a prayer for victory, there's a, a page about winning the battles of the mind, right? Passivity giving place to the enemy. In Revelation. Yes. One of the things that it stuck, stood out to me in the Joyce Meyer one is that even in Revelation, she isn't really talking about the end times. Uh, she's still kind of focused on personal growth stuff. Uh, whereas like the MacArthur and actually several other Bibles would maybe focus on the tribulation or the Antichrist. So it's just kind of an interesting thing. You can see a particular bent in just the notes there. In the book of Revelation, some of the Bibles contain notes about the end times, premillennialism, or some focused on the battles. Others found application to today's life. Each had its own agenda. Not necessarily in a bad way. Maybe they pointed out things relevant to teenagers or married people. Some highlighted historic places or explained a term or brought application to a person's life. But do we ever think about the origins of these notes? How they're steering us? Can these notes bring us closer to God? And can they pull us further apart from each other? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a faith strong enough to hold us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. beginning of the 1900s, people in the United States were optimistic about the future. Most Christians still believed that the world was going to get better and better, and then Jesus would return. One of the leading figures in this movement was William Jennings Bryan. He ran for president of the United States and shaped the course of American politics, turning the Democratic Party progressive. Now, leading up to the 1904 election, you almost couldn't tell the two major parties apart. Under Teddy Roosevelt's first two years in office, he initiated an antitrust suit against a major transportation company, convinced Congress to set up the Bureau of Corporations, set up national parks and refuges, forced anti-union employers to accept arbitration on a major coal strike, and schemed to seize control of land in Panama to build the canal. Not exactly small government. And Roosevelt 
was the Republican. William Jennings Bryan at this time was maybe the most famous Democrat in the country. If you remember, he came to power by appealing to the People's Party, the Populist Party, which was also the most progressive party. He looked at the popularity of Roosevelt's measures and realized that the only way to differentiate the Republicans and the Democrats was for the Democrats to go more progressive. So he revived talks of the federal income tax, called for pure foods, campaigned for municipal ownership of railroads, and the ending of corporate funding for political campaigns. In other words, both major political parties were actively trying to improve society, workers' rights, and make the world a better place through more government. It's a weird moment in American history. The parties looked very similar. People were so optimistic, a doctor in California said, The gospel leaven is leavening now all nations. And any kind of war, it seems to me, has become an impossible thing. Stuff is so good, we may not even have another war. This, of course, was only a few years after the Spanish-American War and just a decade before World War I. So, obviously, the doctor wasn't right. But it demonstrates the feeling in the air at the beginning of the 1900s. It seemed like the sky was the limit. But not everyone thought that world history trends upward, including the guys who put together the Schofield Reference Bible. It's like a lot of the Bibles we flipped through in my small group, the text of scripture plus a whole bunch of notes. Speaking of the Schofield Bible, one writer said, Thousands of Christians, through its enlightening comments, received the true light as to the character of world conditions as they were almost half a century ago, and were delivered from the unscriptural expectation of an ever-increasing and improving betterment of the age. Essentially, that's a brag about how effective the Schofield Bible was in turning people against the promise of progress. To them, people like William Jennings Bryan had it all wrong. Their belief in premillennialist dispensationalism teaches that the world and the church are trending towards chaos, and we need to protect ourselves. The guy who made this document happen was Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield, or CI. I don't know why, but a ton of the leaders of the fundamentalist movement went by their first initials. Cyrus was a lawyer, a state legislator, and the attorney general for Kansas and Indian territories. He was also a drunk. But miraculously, he was born again at the age of 36. Schofield himself became a pastor, including at the East Northfield Congregational Church. Now, if you've been paying close attention this season, the word Northfield should signal something. That was the Massachusetts hometown of evangelist D.L. Moody. Now, Moody and Schofield were close. They spoke at each other's conferences. Schofield was one of his lieutenants even acting as president of some of Moody's schools. Today, we might say that they platformed each other. Schofield had a real passion for prophecy, and maybe not the prophecy you're thinking of. I see in your future a new love, and your lottery numbers are 4, 29, 88, and 2. 
not like fortune teller stuff. Instead, it's like taking the prophecies in the Bible. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back from the land of Israel. And laying them over top of history or predictions of the future. Like assembling a large puzzle. One of the big gatherings for this was the Niagara Bible Conference, which was started by some of Moody's other lieutenants. John Nelson Darby, the guy who packaged dispensationalism and originated the idea of the rapture, spoke there. As did Schofield, who became a critical part of reviving this conference. That is key to our story today. Because listen, we humans have a tendency to get really focused on like one topic. For Schofield, it was prophecy. That's why it is significant that at one of these conferences, Schofield told his friend he wanted to write a reference Bible. Because this Bible would take what he believed about prophecy. And your lottery numbers are 4, 29, 88, and 2. Not that stuff. The stuff that says that the world is sliding into chaos, as is the church. That God interacts with humans in different ways depending on which era they're in. He took all that stuff and packaged it in one conveniently sized book. Put it in a book. In hopes that this reference Bible would turn people's attention to the end times and premillennialist dispensationalism away from that progressive spirit of the age. Schofield moved to Texas to work on it with help from wealthy financiers. I discuss one of them in a mini-episode available to Patreon subscribers of this show. After seven years of work and the scrutiny of various editors, the first edition of the Schofield Reference Bible appeared in 1909. By the end of World War II, it sold around two million copies and is still going strong. So, why is this important? Because lots of us never really question where our Bible notes come from. Many Christians would agree that the Bible text itself is divinely inspired, myself included. But we take that text, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and place it right next to all of this other stuff. In some editions, like the MacArthur Study Bible, it's almost 50-50 notes to text. That's why I gathered my small group together to talk about study Bibles, so we could compare them, like the Founder's Bible. The evidence that America is a Christian nation is overwhelming. If anyone claims otherwise after having examined the historical records, it is because they are stubbornly and myopically predetermined not to acknowledge truth. Yeah. Does, that, does that one have an agenda? bit of an agenda, I would say. It's subtle. Oh. <laughs> I, I found that one to be actually kind of fascinating. There's another page, if you don't mind flipping to page 64, way back at the beginning. And you should see a biography of somebody there, page 64. Oh, it's Thomas Jefferson. Okay. What I find fascinating is that Jefferson is famous for basically being a modernist before modernist theology came out. He, he, which means he was trying to remove the miraculous from the Bible. So he literally, if you get the Jefferson version of the Bible, it, he literally cut out pieces of any kind of reference to the miraculous and left in a, a vision of Jesus 
that is just moral. And yet in, inside this Bible, and I've, I've been through this Bible a whole bunch today, mm-hmm. Jefferson's all over it. And it's kind of lifted up as this, this hero, uh, even though he literally cut out pieces of the Bible. But, but in this Bible, those pieces are not cut out? No. Is that what you're saying? Okay, yeah. that's interesting. It, is, it, like, it has a very strong, high view of the Bible, but Jefferson didn't, and it, it also lifts up Jefferson within the Bible, which I think is pretty interesting. The Founder's Bible is maybe a strong example of an agenda in the text, but you can see through this obvious bias how this stuff works. Even study notes have a directed purpose. Which brings us back to C.I. Schofield and his magnum opus. We examined my copy, which was the 1945 edition. This is the Bible that this episode is actually about. What is your first impression, just looking at the outside cover, looking at some of the print that's on there, what is your first impression of the Schofield Reference Bible? Looks like a dictionary or like an academic book almost to me. Yeah. Flip over to the back cover. Yeah, okay, so the font it reminds me, I can definitely tell it's dated, like, based on the font. Like, reminds me of some of the posters of, like, the um, Rosie the Riveter type of font. Yeah. Or a pre- prefab house kind of catalog mm. from the 1960s yeah. or 40s, yeah. like that, that kind of... Parties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there any sort of theological bents that are expressed on the, on the outside of the Bible there? One says, was man created or evolved? That seems to be a hot topic. What is redemption? What is sanctification, justification, predestination? It kind of clearly lays out sort of theology that maybe some of these other Bibles would disagree with. So it asks, like, what is a dispensation? Those are actually some terms that within this season, we're going to talk about the debates about them. Uh, But it's right on the outside of this Bible, laying out exactly we have an opinion on it. And that's just the outside. Let's journey within the pages to see what we can find. We'll start by focusing on one verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female he created them. That's from the beginning of Genesis. Pretty clear cut. God created man and woman in his image. If you slide your finger down the page, you get this note under the heading, The First Dispensation. Innocency. A dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of God. Seven such dispensations are distinguished in Scripture. Which guides the mind of the reader that this verse signals a dispensation. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but it certainly is a theological agenda. It's really clear. Within just the first few pages, the Schofield Bible is pushing its downward-trending view of history. It's, it is a weird thing uh, because I, it makes me nervous, and I, I don't want to denigrate all study Bibles because I think there's a great deal of value in seeing what other people have thought throughout the ages about different passages. But in a lot of ways, to me, it's a lot like um, taking in any kind of media like the news and being like, I have to just understand that there may be an agenda to each of these things. And that's not always easy to do. Uh, but sometimes by just like laying them out side by side and saying, what is the agenda to this, to, to this Bible, is can, I think for me can be really helpful. I, I, I don't know how I feel about the reality that we have Bibles for different groups of people. You know, I, I really have struggled with that in, in pulling all these Bibles together. Well, especially with like the Founder's Bible, it kind of ignores 
anybody else in the world. It seems incongruous with, with, with Jesus' mission to reach the whole world and how often the whole world is mentioned to, to reach all of the nations. And this one seems to, you know, eh, nobody else really matters. Like, we, we're just the, we're the exceptional ones. Our Bible notes influence us, not just the Schofield or Founders versions, all of them. Call me naive, um, but I've never even thought to think about the notes of the Bible. The, the Bible that I use is an English student version or study version, and I just, the same way that I kind of assume the Bible is the same, relatively the same through all the translations, I kind of thought that the notes would be the same through all the translations. So this is like eye-opening that that actually is not the case. <laughs> it's, it's very cool to see the, the themes, like these Bibles have themes and they definitely, like the notes go with those themes for sure. At the start of the 1900s, when people were feeling upbeat about human progress, the Schofield Reference Bible came out and shook things up, along with world events, conferences, Christian colleges, and changes in preaching, the Schofield Bible turned the tide to make evangelicals more suspicious of human achievement and of each other, to highlight the end, even on the first few pages expecting apostasy over progress. Wow, well thank you so much for everybody. This has been this has been a godsend. I appreciate y'all. God bless you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Special thanks to everyone in my small group who helped out, including Melanie, Hannah, and Nick. Thanks also to Marion and Mark for loaning me their Bibles. You can find a complete list of sources for this show in your show notes and on the website at trucepodcast.com. Most episodes also feature discussion questions in case you want to talk about the show in your small group or around the dinner table. This week, patrons of the show can get access to an exclusive mini-episode discussing one of the guys who financed three major parts of the fundamentalist movement, including the Schofield Reference Bible. Become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Truce is listener-supported. I'd love to do this show full-time, which would mean bigger, better episodes for you and some much-needed R&R for me. Venmo me at at trucepodcast or visit trucepodcast.com slash donate for more information. What kind of Bible do you use? Take a picture with your Bible and tag the show on social media at at trucepodcast. Thanks also to my fellow podcasters who loaned me their voices for this episode. Lori Armstrong from A Voice for the Hurting and Rodney Olson from Bleeding Daylight. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. God willing, we'll talk again soon. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.